on 98FM and online. This is Phoenix FM. we've got here is failure to communicate. Welcome to another edition of Happiness to be found even in the darkest of times. probably contains a new data encryption algorithm. You'll never get in there. Welcome to another edition of the Happiness Algorithm with me, James Roast. It's the show that talks all things mental health, emotional well-being and what we can do to make us that little bit happier. Now, I'm very excited uh, to be joined. My guest today is someone who is well-versed in the world of mental health. She is a mental health blogger from Hampshire. She's also a qualified mental health nurse and runs a very successful Etsy shop selling small items designed to reduce the stigma around mental health problems, promote self-care, body positivity and feminism. She struggled with anorexia on and off for around 17 years and it was five years ago she was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. After long periods of depression she started to experience bursts of mania. It was not long after this she started to blog. Her excellently written blog shares her journey from being a newly qualified mental health nurse who has mental illness to now talking about her career, personal recovery journey and experiences alongside discussing general mental health and well-being. It was last year when tragedy struck again and my guest was re-diagnosed with anorexia after a very quick and severe relapse. Her blog has again captured the subsequent recovery journey through day patient to outpatient. She is passionate about raising awareness and speaking on these two very misunderstood illnesses. She hopes that her platform will contribute to a growing understanding, giving others the confidence to access help and not feel so isolated. Um, I'm extremely excited to welcome to the show the newly crowned social media champion of the year. Uh, please welcome Cara Lizette. Cara, how are you doing? Hi, James. I'm good, thank you. Uh, well, I suppose we, we must kick off with uh, your your new award, social media champion of the year. Yeah, that was a nice surprise. Well, you are extremely active on the social medias. Obviously, it's a big part of of you and uh, and 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 what you do. Um, a nice surprise. Um, obviously, great recognition for for all the work that you do as well. Yeah, definitely. And like you know, there's there is more to life than social media. But I think when you are um, trying to do things like raise awareness about certain things and try and you know. Um, tackle stigma and things like that social media is a really good place to do it so it is nice to kind of have that recognized I think 
I agree. Well, look, before we set sail and, and, and embark on our journey of, uh, of the conversation, um, for those that are not aware of uh, who you are, and, and I'd be surprised who doesn't, but, but in terms of tell us a little bit about Cara's Corner, uh, who you are and, and your journey to date. So I started it when I qualified as a mental health nurse, which was just coming up three years ago now. Um, I kind of thought initially that it would be a good place for me to talk about um, kind of what my experience was like as a newly qualified nurse while I had my own mental health problems. But it didn't naturally kind of go in that direction. We don't tend to talk too much about nursing on it, really, unless there's something specific nursing-related going on in the world. Um, it just tends to focus more on my general well-being and then at times when things have been more difficult I've been more honest about that. Um, I didn't used to use it particularly as like a diary as much as I do now it would be more generic and I talk about my past experiences but the longer I've had it the more confident I feel about talking about things as I'm going through them and um, I've had loads of really nice messages from people that have said that it's been really helpful for me doing that so it's also really helpful for me too because um, it's quite a cathartic process sort of being able to write about what's going on for you and knowing that it's helping other people as well is a really big motivator for it so it's kind of just grown and grown really I didn't really think much of it when I started it and I remember getting like 10 followers and thinking I can't believe 10 people are reading what I'm writing and then yeah just over the last like three years it's just grown into something that I never could have imagined really. When you set out on you know writing the blog uh, was it as you said there getting 10 followers was was a was a wonderful response and you couldn't believe that that they'd be interested how protected was you over the content of it with regards to how much did you want to give away and how much did you keep in reserve well when i when i first started blogging actually it was for time to change and it was anonymous because i was really worried about um any of my colleagues sort of tracing anything back to me really and um i didn't want people in real life to find out that I had mental health problems was quite secretive about it which I think people wouldn't believe now because I'm such an open book um but I was quite cautious about what I was putting out there um and just over time I think I gained more confidence because of the response I was getting from people of like no one was particularly judging me for it and it didn't affect um my life negatively in in any ways and like I wasn't missing out on career opportunities or losing friends or anything like that and actually I was having a lot of like positive things happen to me as a result of it like um you know like getting awards and making contact with new people and being able to do like podcasts and things like that and lots of opportunities started coming out as a result of it and then the more that happened the more confident I felt to share so I mean I didn't go into it sort of bearing my soul for everyone to see that's kind of happened as time's gone on um but I do feel I do feel quite protective over what I share, but I do share a lot more now than I used to, if that makes sense. Mm. Where does that, or I was going to say, where does that confidence come from, and and why why is that? Why has it evolved over a period of time? I think it's it's just been that I've had such a positive response from it, and it's made me feel a bit braver, and also that so much of the feedback that I've had from people has been that, that it's really helpful for them and that's really encouraged me to to share more because that's kind of why I started it really it, it, it 
it's a bit of a, a sort of happy side effect that I find it helpful for myself because the reason I started it was I wanted it to be helpful for other people. Um, and knowing that that's the case has really like motivated me to, to be more open and to share a bit more. That's really lovely to hear because I think that at the heart of it, anything that we do, I think we as individuals have to enjoy it. I think if we're, uh, you know, we touched on social media there and it's something that I'd love to talk to you about later in the show. But, um, you know, we live in a world where often through social media, people are projecting images of themselves that is false or it's it's altered or it's fabricated. And I think that becomes a really dangerous game and we lose, as I say, the essence or what it's providing us. So it's fantastic to hear that you you are doing it primarily for you first. And, and I think for me, reading it, that's, that's the pull. You can see that it's you, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all you enough that for me is, it's the appeal for probably many others as well. Those that are in crisis, those that are struggling, uh, can see that actually they're not alone in, in, in this. Um, you, you touched on the positive feedback that you've had throughout, um, your time blogging. Do you get any negative have you ever had any negative feedback has anyone ever sort of been unkind during that process very very rarely luckily um which is nice because obviously you do make yourself quite vulnerable when you are sort of bearing yourself to the internet um and talking about you know your sort of deepest difficulties so i have been quite fortunate and um, there have been a couple of times like a couple of times when i've had tweets go viral and things like that and then i've become more exposed, I guess, to the, the corners of the internet that I might not reach otherwise. Uh, or I've had people that they, think, mm. they say, like, I don't think I should be in there because I've got mental health problems and things like that. And a couple of the odd, like, you're just being attention-seeking type comments. But but generally, no, it's been it's been overwhelmingly positive. I have been really lucky in that regard. Good. How do you manage the those comments, those negative comments when they when they come in? I think what I've learned over the years is that you're not really ever going to win an argument with a stranger on the internet. <laughs> so there's no point in engaging in one. Um, <laughs> like there's no winners in that situation. Um, no, no. You know, you're just, you're wasting time and you're wasting energy. And I think if someone's gone out of their way to be nasty to a stranger, then then what's the point in engaging in that? I think you're just feeding into it. So um, I, that certainly wasn't always my my knee-jerk response to it and I would have previously argued with people I think but now as, as I've been doing it longer and time's gone on I just think I don't really have the energy for anymore so I just ignore it mm. well good for you I mean <laughs> I know we've spoken about this previously off air and I am uh I am so I'm not an, a massive um social media user I, I do my best I do do my best um but I am so naive to the viciousness and the negativity that's out there yes I'm, I'm aware of it as much as everybody else but you know you and I have spoke previously about it and um I'm just shocked even colleagues I've spoken to before that use it on a professional platform particularly uh for females um I just think it's outrageous and I know uh, I, I'm planning to do a show on it uh, at some point in the future because when you and I have spoke I was just I would 
uh, well flabbergasted about some of the comments that females get online and uh, and and the negativity and and the predatory predatory aspects of it as well. So, uh, as we said, it, it's a fantastic platform to uh, to be able to share support many others but equally there is a dark side as well but it's good to hear that you've you've reached a point where you're able to just just sort of forget it water off a duck's back not engage in it and uh, as you say you're never going to win an argument with a stranger online yeah and like one thing that i think is really important is that if you like you can curate your own social media feed so actually like you don't owe anybody a follow and you don't owe anybody your time and actually the block button's there for a reason and I use it quite liberally now like you haven't lost an argument if you block someone and um, I think you're winning mm. anything you're just getting about your life and not thinking about them anymore so I think like making your social media like a safe space for you is, is really really important yeah absolutely well I as you say that block button is there for a reason and actually that's just it's a it's a, a positive step it's taking taking ownership and taking control of a situation that could easily get well feel as though we're getting out of control if we get into that argument like you say so um yeah i think that's 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 really strong and 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 good advice if we may uh you mentioned there when you first started out uh blogging that for uh time to change and and uh you know anonymously through fear of what colleagues would think or how they may react tell me a little bit more about that i think it's quite a hard thing for people to understand maybe if they don't work in it but but the mental health professional field can be quite a stigmatizing environment um and i think particularly for things like eating disorders and personality disorders um that there is still this stigma of you know you're you're choosing to be ill and your, your behaviors are a choice and um i know that i'd be with uh, in meetings and things like that and I've heard colleagues say things about people eating disorders and that they're they're basically choosing to be ill and that made me really conscious of not wanting to kind of share that that was something that I'd been through because I didn't want people to think that I was like an attention seeker and things like that so that that probably kept me quiet for quite a long time really um so yeah I was just worried I think that people would think that maybe I wasn't like professionally capable as well and that's always kind of weighed quite heavily on me because I do I do carry this like self-stigma I guess that maybe I'm not as good at things as I could be because I have mental health problems and um yeah so that that made things quite difficult but but everyone's been really supportive like the more that I've talked about it so I don't I don't have that fear anymore but it was yeah it was a big fear when I first started writing and talking about it I mean, it, I, I'm I'm sure there'd be many surprised that the fact that you know the mental health um, there would be pockets uh, of the mental health profession that would still adopt a uh, a stigma or, or you know maintain a stigma around individuals working in the profession that have uh, a mental illness or, or or are struggling from an emotional and psychological perspective because. It's disappointing to hear, personally, that that it's that way. It's disappointing to hear that you felt that way too, um, because I suppose anyone that and and hopefully we'll we'll dive a little deeper into your your story as well. Because um, f- for me, 
if I look at it from a, say, from a uh, psychotherapy perspective, uh, a, a part of that training and process is for the individual to go through their own personal therapy. Um, and, you know, Carl Jung said that we're, you know, anyone that works in, in the helping profession as such in the world of uh, psychology and that, it, we're all wounded healers. And I suppose that for us to be explicitly aware of our own emotional landscape, we've got to be able to understand crisis, for us to be accurately, or to be able to offer accurate empathy to some extent uh, there, there's a, there's a need to, to have experienced crisis. Listen, I'm not suggesting anyone needs to go through, uh, you know, really difficult, difficult, difficult situations. Uh, however, this, this sense of understanding self is crucial. And it always worries me that if there are pockets of the profession that project a perfectionism, that can't be, can't be fair for those that they're working with, uh, mm-hmm. from a patient perspective either. Um, so if we may, Cara, can we dip into sort of your, you know, I, I gave a very, very brief introduction there at the top of the show, but w- would you share with us, you know, what your journey has been uh, for, with mental illness and anorexia and obviously the, the more recent diagnosis of, uh, of bipolar? Yeah, so I've always had body image issues from when I was like a child, really, um, Apparently, I'd started weighing myself in primary school, and I remember being sort of seven or eight and being really acutely aware of my size and comparing myself to other children. So I think it's always been brewing, really. Um, I think symptoms started probably when I was around 12-ish, and then I think I was diagnosed at 13 the first time. Um, I was also diagnosed with depression around that time. And then basically just stayed under community mental health services for as long as it was sustainable and then when I was 15 I got admitted to psychiatric hospital for six months. Things were not too bad after that for a while but I relapsed relatively quickly. Uh, I think when I was 17 I got referred into the adult eating disorder service but I declined the assessment because I just wasn't in a place where I felt like I could engage in it really. Um, I did okay for a while and then I went back when I was 21 to the adult eating disorder service for CBT which I didn't find very helpful um, and I was then subsequently back there about six months later and had a course of psychodynamic psychotherapy which was really really good um, then I did quite well after that for a few years and then I'm not really sure exactly what happened but I had a really quite um, rapid and quite severe relapse sort of like summer of last year and then by the time I got picked up for treatment I wasn't well enough for outpatient treatment anymore so I went into a day patient program for seven months which I was discharged from in June and I'm now back in outpatient therapy there. Um, I had a diagnosis of recurrent depressive disorder that sort of followed me through like this whole time and then I started getting manic episodes when I was around I'd say early 20s, but not they weren't like severe enough to sort of flag up on the radar of mental health services until I was 25. Um, and then that's when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So I took uh, a little bit of time out of uni, just a few weeks out of uni, to get my uh, medication adjusted and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, and ended up going back 
and finished my degree with no problems at all. Um, I've had a couple of episodes subsequently and um, was under the crisis team for a couple of weeks a couple of years ago, but my medication is really well balanced at the moment since then. So mood-wise, I've been stable for coming up two years now, which is probably the longest time it's been stable for in, in memory, I think. So mood-wise, with my bipolar, I'm doing really well at the moment, and with anorexia, I'm certainly in a lot better place than I was last year. Oh, well done, you. I mean, it is a long... Uh, it's it's been a long road, a long journey of of as I say, as you said, sort of inpatient, outpatient, day patients as well. And and for those listeners that that are not sort of aware of what those services are, um, explain the difference between the sort of outpatient, day patient, and what inpatient stays look like. So outpatient is generally weekly therapy appointments. Um, you'll have like an allotted quota of therapy appointments that you go to um in eating disorder services that will be that um generally you'll go and you'll get weighed at the start and then you'll do your therapy and then go and sort of implement the the techniques that you've learned during the week and then come back and do the same thing um in the community mental health team i've had therapy with them as well um which has been sort of similar where i have like a weekly therapy appointment and sometimes you'll just have a care coordinator so that's just a um, go in and like check in every now and again to see how you're doing. It's not necessarily weekly, though, so you might fortnightly. Um, day patient is sort of in between outpatient and inpatient, so it's where like you're you're not well enough for outpatient, but you're probably okay to manage without being in hospital. So generally, you have to be pretty recovery motivated to be able to do day patient because you're obviously only there in the day, and then at the weekend. And in the evening, you have to be still doing the things that you're supposed to be doing um, at home because you're not in a hospital environment with someone checking up on you. Day patient, I found really, really useful, actually. So we would go in for um, snacks, breakfast and lunch. And then they, they had like therapy groups in between that you'd go to. It was a really small program. There's only, I think there was five of us when I was there. And you can have like a maximum of eight. So it's quite small and like really, really intense. Um, so I found that really useful. The thing with eating disorders is it's quite difficult to engage in outpatient therapy when you're at a really low weight because like cognitively your brain can't process the therapy. So sometimes you do have to do something like medication mm. or inpatient to, to get you to a weight that's high enough that you can then start engaging in therapy properly. Um, so inpatient, I mean, my, my inpatient mission was 15 years ago maybe a bit less than that um yeah 15 years ago and I found that really helpful as well actually I was there for six months um so it's, it's kind of similar to day patient really but you stay over so you live there so yeah we would do like different therapy groups um have like OT input meet with a nurse on a regular basis have all your meals and snacks supervised um weekly weigh-ins that sort of thing so I'm glad that I avoided in doing inpatient again this time, though, and that there's not that many day patient programs in the country, so I'm really lucky that I've got one locally to me, because um, that definitely meant that mm. I didn't have to go back into hospital this time, and I'm really glad that I didn't. Why, why is that? Why did you not want to go back in as an inpatient? I think I just really wanted to try and like maintain some of my independence, um, and I was really worried about having to like be away from my partner and 
obviously I had to take time out of work to do day patient, but I worried that that time would be even longer if I had to go to hospital. And also, I think like some hospital does have a place, but I think sometimes it can take a bit of like responsibility away from you. And I knew that like day patient does that to some degree that you do have to pick it up when you go back home. And I think if I'd have been in hospital and just had people doing all of that for me the whole time, I might have struggled to carry it on once I got home and got discharged. But because you're kind of doing both at the same time and you're in day patient, I think it helps to um, have those skills transfer back into your home environment a lot easier. Hmm. I know when we spoke before, uh, when we we did um, discuss the uh, uh, about day patient, and I I agree. I think what a, what an amazing service, and particularly to have one um, local to you as well. It's something that I hadn't come across in the past, and it's always a balance between outpatient. I've found historically speaking with colleagues, the balance between outpatient and inpatient and the positives and the risks with each and, you know, and how each case has to be judged accordingly. Um, Cara, if we can go back sort of 15 years, I'd be really interested to understand how you felt um, when you was first told that you would be going in as an inpatient, because obviously you was quite young at the time. Um, and and I'm, mm. I'm assuming that it was never you know, six months was never spoken about. It was just that you was going in as an inpatient and until you was in uh, a better position. Can you remember how you felt emotionally at the time? I think, yeah, I mean, I was 15, so it was a long time ago. I think primarily I was just really relieved and very scared. But, yeah, I think it was more just like, you know, I'm going to be somewhere that's safe and it's going to try and, you know, take this horrible feeling that I've got away from me um, and knowing that I was going to have that increased support so I was lucky as well actually because I was given an option of I could either go and have a, a sort of more like emergency admission but could go anywhere in the country or they would try and support me at home as much as possible and wait for a local bed to come up and I chose that option so I stayed at home for about a month after it had been agreed that I would have an admission so that I was able to stay near home and that was that was really useful for me because it meant I could obviously still like go home at the weekends and see my family and keep in touch with my friends which is really key I think to helping me like readjust to life when I came back out um yeah you're right there was no when I went in it wasn't you're going to be in for six months it was just you're going to be in till you're well enough to not be here anymore and however long it takes is however long it takes really um obviously like mm-hmm. as time goes on they, they kind of give you an idea of like, oh, well, we think you need to be here for another three months or whatever. But yeah, at the beginning, you don't, you don't really know how long you're going to be there for. And I think that, well, you make an interesting point there as well, actually, um, that it can be a case you know, that the individuals end up where a bed is available and that can be out of area. Um, and I suppose hats off to, to Hampshire because um, mm-hmm. they've, it sounds like they've supported you excellently over the years um, and to obviously keep you closer to home as well. Was it, a, was it a, a, an eating disorder inpatient unit or was it a mixed psych ward? It's mixed, so it's like 50% eating disorder and 50% general acute mental health problems. And during that period, um, obviously six months is a, is a reasonable reasonably long or you know depends on perspective the way we look at it what was the when you look back at that period of your life how did you find it difficult but very helpful um 
yeah, I think the structure was really useful and that's something that I really benefited from in day patient as well and have been able to replicate like, as best as I can outside of that environment now with like eating times and things like that. Um, it's, I think there's a lot to be said for being in an environment where you're with peers that also are in a similar position to you and kind of understand what you're going through because mental illness can feel really, really isolating and you can feel really lonely and you know nobody else in the world feels as terrible as I feel and actually there are people that do get it and there is a lot to be said for that peer support I think. Um, I think I just really valued having the opportunity to have a bit of a break from life just to focus on myself and getting myself better. Um, which is again something that I found really useful about day patient is it's just you know we're just going to take you out of life and this is your focus at the moment and don't worry about anything else that's going on we can kind of come back to that when you're better um, and they were really the hospital mm-hmm. were really good at uh, you know having people go home at weekends and things like that so I still got to see my friends quite regularly and um, my mum could come and visit me and you could kind of keep up that the things in life that are important outside of hospital so that you don't go in and then come out and then you know, you don't have anything left. I managed to keep up all my um, all my contacts with like my friends and things, so it didn't feel quite so scary coming out of hospital, even though I'd been there for quite a long time. Well, that was it. Was going to be one of my questions, actually. You know, when we talk about six months of of living a life in a certain way I was wondering about the transition back into home if you look at the current climate we're living in now with the with with the pandemic obviously people have had to make significant adjustments to their life with four five months into it as well and some people's lives well some people are struggling with the adjustment they've had to make and so I was going to ask how how did it feel when you were eventually discharged and then sort of integrating yourself back into some it back into life which was actually the problem in the first place how did you find that adjustment it was really difficult um and I think that's why I probably didn't last that long until I'd relapsed again um because it was such a big adjustment I think when I left I went straight into college um and started getting some you know goals about what I wanted to do with my life together and had a bit of a focus so that really helped and I, and I got a job and things like that so I had um I just made sure that I kind of built my life up and it wasn't I didn't want it to just be my identity that I'd been sick and been in hospital and then came out and was just sick again I wanted to have more going on in my life than that so I did make a point of yeah I'm going to start college I'm going to I'm going to go to uni I'm going to get a job I'm going to do all these things and you know see my friends and made sure that I, I had things that were going on that meant I wasn't just that kind of wallowing in illness I had other things to focus Mm. on you also mentioned during you know during that stay having peers around you that were equally going through periods of crisis and distress was was reassuring and actually there was a relatability to others there um that that made you feel as though you you wasn't in it alone do you think that's where the sort of seeds of the blog come from with regards to and I don't mean that question to be too leading I'm more curious mm-hmm. um because it because if we sort of I'm jumping forward again now towards the to, towards sort of Cara's blog and actually the realness and the authenticity and the way you write and the positivity in terms of the comments and the feedback from others it's 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 being able to be understood and realize that we all go through these periods of crisis with that feeling back then um was very important to you do you think that's where where 
you know, things began to grow or foster or cultivate? I would say that definitely had an impact on it because I think going back 15 years ago, like it's not that long ago, but mental health was spoken about really differently than to how it is now. And like, I didn't know, mm. my school didn't talk about it at all. Like, I didn't know any other children that had an eating disorder. There was like probably a real handful of us that had um, problems with self-harming at school, but, but you know, not many at all. Um, so I didn't really have anybody my age or, or older that I could relate to at all with how I was feeling and I think that probably helped compound the whole I'm on my own with this and no one's ever felt as terrible as I feel and no one understands how I feel and what I'm going through so I think probably being around other people that understood in that environment definitely did did spark the idea that it was really important to have other people that understood what you were going through. Mm. The staff that you were working with uh, during that stay as well um how did you find that how was that experience for you oh they were lovely they were lovely I can't fault them at all and actually that's what that was what kind of led to me going down this career path really so when I left hospital I was going to be when I was a kid I wanted to be like a show jumper and when I left hospital I was going to be a tattoo artist and then when I went to college I did fashion design three years um but I just kept thinking about how like what a big difference those nurses made on my life and how much I appreciated them and what a what a nice job that seemed to be and that was kind of what changed my mind really and led me to go and do my nursing um and I work in CAMS now so actually a lot of the people that are in hospital are just my colleagues now and I see them out and about um when I'm going to do assessments and like going to team meetings and things like that and it's quite it was quite weird to begin with but I actually think it's kind of nice now that they can see someone who Although obviously I've still had my difficulties, it's come out and been like quite a nice success story. I think that is uh, that's incredible. What an accolade to 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 give to those nurses that you work with, and actually, it's uh, it's heartwarming to hear that it then changed your direction to 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 want to give back uh, to a service that supported you for so long. And now that you know those that are they're now your colleagues. That's incredible. Mm. So, Kara, let's uh, let's dive into your first song choice. We must um, stick with us here on the Happiness Algorithm. I'm James Rose. My special guest today is Kara Lizette, and this is her first song choice.
Welcome back to the Happiness Algorithm with me, James Roast. Uh, that was uh, that was Lizzo and Juice. That was my guest, Kari Lizette's first song choice. Uh, that's that's a that's a cracking song, hey? Yeah, I love that so much. I just think she's so positive, and she's got such a nice approach to like self love and body positivity. And like, I just think like if I'm in a bad mood, I can just put some Lizzo on and it cheers me up. It, well, you know what? I, I was just sitting here, sort of just listening to the track play out with a big smile on my face. And yeah, you can't beat Lizzo for sort of lifting your mood. Um, so, Cara, before that break, we, we've, uh, we've we've sort of touched upon briefly your sort of journey and those early years, sort of 15 years ago in the inpatient stay and, and the positive aspects to it. And actually so positive, in fact, that you moved from wanting to be a tattoo artist, show jumper or, or working in fashion in some way design uh to then moving and following a career in mental health nursing uh and you put a lot of that down to the care and the relationships you formed with those professionals that were working with you during those early inpatient stays mm, absolutely so tell us about how it you know that the the pull towards doing that degree in nursing and what did others think? What did your family think? And was it something they thought, oh, yeah, what a great idea? Or, or you know, is this, a, is this a good idea? Yeah, so, you know, I'd kind of been thinking about wanting to do something in mental health for a while. Um, so I looked into counselling for a little bit and then thought about maybe psychology or something like that. And then it wasn't until I got a job working on a psychiatric ward as a support worker when I was 18 and then worked with mental health nurses then obviously and then kind of thought no this is the direction that I want to go in I, I, do, I think there's a lot to be said for for counseling psychology and but for me it was having that more I guess like you can have more contact with patients I think as a nurse sometimes than you can in perhaps some other in, in like psychology and things like that and I really valued that mm. and also from support worker um nursing is just the sort of natural progression 
up that way really so the reason that it actually came about is that I was at college and I was doing fashion design I was about to apply to university and um that was when the there was a big recession and um everybody got made redundant and I got made redundant from my part-time jobs and it made me just like reevaluate what I was doing really and and as I was doing my uni applications I just thought no you know what this isn't actually this isn't what I want to be doing for the rest of my life so then I just went and got a job in the NHS like straight away after that um and then yeah just I've just got my 10 years NHS service this year so it's been a it's been a long time now that I've been doing it for but yeah nursing was just sort of the the natural progression from when I started as a support worker and it just felt like the right way to go with it maybe. I think people like my mum's always worked in um the sort of like care industry like health and social care um, and I think yeah people thought that it seemed to kind of fit my personality quite well so yeah people mostly like really positive about it. Well congratulations on the 10 years as well um <laughs> it's it's lovely to see uh someone give so much uh, to the NHS and 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 considering what what you've been through uh, what I, the question that sort of comes to mind is do you feel what you've been through informs your practice now yeah definitely but I'm I'm not that big a fan of self-disclosure at work with with patients so like I don't mind talking about okay. like what's going with my colleagues um but I I kind of think that it makes the interaction about me instead of about them, and I don't feel particularly comfortable with that. Um, so even though I'm I'm very open, like online and you know with like my friends and things like that, I don't don't ever share anything directly about myself or my like mental health history when I am having any sort of patient interactions. But I like to think that that my experiences kind of underpin how I practice without me having to like overtly tell people about it, if that makes sense. If they were to, well, as, as you were talking there, there was about <laughs> 15 questions that popped into my head. Because I'm that self disclosure is um, is something that I find fascinating. I truly do, and I, I find it a bit of a spectrum. I've worked with colleagues that actually are, are, are you know buttoned up, and that's it, no self disclosure whatsoever. And actually, there's the other end of the spectrum where there, I've got colleagues that are very open about their own uh, personal experiences, and I like you. I'm 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 often fascinated to know where the line is between it being uh, a positive contribution or does it then take away and become more about the actual professional um so one of the questions that that come to mind was what if somebody asked you in the sense that they said you know obviously a, a adolescent or child in crisis and would say you don't understand you know you've never been through it what if they sort of asked you direct would you would you share part or would you still be sort of closed off to that disclosure I think I still wouldn't share anything particularly personal, but I, I would say, you know, lots of people have difficult experiences that, that you might not be aware of, and, you know, nobody's life is straightforward and easy, and we all have difficult times in our life and try and generalise it as much as possible. But no, I still wouldn't say I do understand because I used to self-harm or I do understand because I had anorexia or anything like that. Mm. Well answered. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, look, your your blog, and as we said earlier in the show, your social media presence, presence is huge. Have you ever had uh, somebody you're working with come across your blog or your social media presence? Yeah, I've had a few. Um, I've had a few. Um, 
a, a patient. Yeah. A patient. Uh, yes, but it's, uh, I don't. I, I use like a, a pseudonym online, so I'm not so detectable. Um, but yeah, it has happened occasionally. Um, it's not. It's not caused me any problems. Um, but obviously, I don't. It's, it's like it. It feels really harsh because sometimes I'll get a message from a patient, for example, that will say something really nice, but it, I still can't engage in that conversation regardless of whether they're saying anything nice or not. So it can feel quite. Um, I can feel quite mean sometimes that someone will say something to me and I have to just like ignore it or block them. But professionally, that's kind of the boundaries that I have to put in place, really. But no, it, it doesn't happen very often at all for the reason that I think I, I use like two different names. Mm. And what about from a staff perspective, from your colleagues? I'm sh- obviously there. I'm sure they're aware of your, uh, your your blogging and and social media presence as well. Has that brought them some comfort in terms of what they're going through? Sometimes I know you said that it's not so much about the nursing as such now, um, but that the they enjoy the read. Yeah, like I, I was really that was the thing I was most fearful of when I started my blog is that people that I work with would find it and obviously it's like everywhere now and loads of everybody knows that I have it and it's fine um I don't mind at all now but one thing that's been really nice about it is that I think it means that other people think they can talk to me when things are difficult for them as well um so that's mm. been nice that people in real life will say you know it's helped them to like open up more about what's going on for them I think because I've done it and kind of set the example I guess that you can do it and it's okay and um you know nothing bad has happened as a result of it and it's definitely meant I think that I'm actually like really close with a lot of my colleagues now and I think that's probably been has definitely played a part in that so I want to talk a little bit about that actually in terms of others being able to talk to you and the social media bit but but before we move on to that if we may We've said about the, the the positive aspects of what of your journey and what you've been through and how it informs your current practice now and there's 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 strength behind that and the relatability and, and being able to offer that accurate empathy. Obviously we know the world of, of mental health and, and CAMS and inpatient is really difficult. I think anyone uh, that works in the child and adolescent field uh, is you know, it's it's really important and I, I'm a believer that actually those that work in that field have to know themselves explicitly well because obviously it's difficult working with that that uh, that that age range as well. What about the any triggering aspects? Do you find that you have to be more mindful, aware of when working with certain individuals that it could trigger you in some way? So I'm. I'm- pretty trigger proof to like 90% of things I would say but I don't work with patients with eating disorders directly um, and my my work are very supportive of that because I think that wouldn't be helpful for me or for them particularly um, so I do have obviously like clinical conversations and meetings and things about people we've got on our caseloads that have eating disorders but I don't do any direct work with them but other than that no like this I'm not particularly faced by by much to be honest now I think because I've done it for so long um Hmm. you do get like desensitized to stuff quite quickly I think in mental health sometimes if you're doing it like day in day out um and I think because my mental health other than my eating disorder because my mental health in in all other aspects is pretty stable um then generally I don't find it particularly triggering 
those clinical conversations with ED patients, um, you you must be able to contribute in a very sort of constructive and positive way. Or would that be? Is that an unfair statement to make? Again, is it too leading? probably can um i think i think that the empathy is like not that other professionals don't have empathy but i think i probably have it on a different level um to people who haven't gone through it and experienced it so i, I like yeah i like to think i can still contribute something helpful to those discussions even if i'm not doing any of the face-to-face work mm. I, I've spoken to guests in the past with regards to that sort of lived experience and um, and and being able to 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 relate in ways that perhaps others can't be, be, because they're they're not with that lived experience. So it's again, it's another sort of interesting area. Mm. Um, now, obviously, we we've spent some time around the sort of anorexia and the battles there, and it and it was as we said at the top of the show uh, around about five years ago that you was diagnosed with uh bipolar Mm. tell me about that process and what that felt like um, and when that diagnosis was given so what happened is i'd I'd been to the gp and it had been queried as to whether that was was a possible explanation for like how i was behaving so i had an assessment with this meeting mental health team who said there is some evidence to suggest that it's probably the case but because you're not acutely unwell at the moment and we don't we don't have quite enough evidence to give a formal diagnosis we don't want to put you on these sort of heavy duty medications and, and put this label on you if it's not right so let's kind of just play a bit of wait and see and then just coincidentally about two months later was when I had um, another manic episode and I went back there and then they diagnosed me then um I remember I've I got all these like medication leaflets to take away with me and obviously like I'm a mental health nurse so I know I know the medications anyway and what they what they mean and what their side effects are and things like that and I remember him telling me saying like yes like we're giving you this diagnosis now and me just feeling really relieved and, and being quite grateful and thinking oh you know thank you that helps a lot of my life makes a lot of sense and then just going and sitting in my car and crying for like half an hour because it just felt so overwhelming as you know it's a, it's a lifelong illness for what we know about it and I knew that um it did mean that there was a high chance I was going to be on medication for the rest of my life and um generally what we know about it is that symptoms for a lot of people do get worse over time so I think I just was really catastrophizing that you know the rest of my life is ruined now um because it was so much information I think to take on and it did take me a while to sort of process it properly and think oh well actually just because I've just been diagnosed with it, I've obviously had it for a while and my life isn't ruined as a result. Um, and we did a lot of medication trial and error for, for what spanned over quite a few years in the end um, and managed to get that balance right now. And I still have quite a lot of wiggle room in terms of dosages and stuff of what I'm on now. So I feel quite quite happy about that, that if anything did, if and when I do have another episode that I don't necessarily have to start switching medications around again, I can just readjust the ones I'm on now, which is really reassuring. So I did have um, some quite bad side effects from some of the antipsychotics that I was taking initially. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a mix of, of relief and being really scared simultaneously. Mm. You mentioned there about the sort of difficult side effects from from the meds as well, um, and also it took a while to get the medication right and balanced. 
what was it that was uh, I suppose for for those that are listening and, and getting an understanding of because it, okay so let me let me put a, a, a pre uh, ask, a pretense to the question really is um, when we are in crisis um, seeking support is is essential and um, you know seeing the psychiatrist or the GP to to help us through that period of crisis if we can't do it ourselves um, and it always worries me if there are medications prescribed and then there's no sort of follow-up or there's there's no sort of uh, focus and collaborative process with the individual. I worked with a psychiatrist years ago that always said that um, the art of psychiatry, well, sorry, psychiatry is an art more than a science in respect of certainly from a medication perspective, it's about getting it right for the individual and building that sort of package around them. So when you were going through that, that period of working out dosages medications what worked and what didn't how did you know it wasn't working what were the side effects and how confident were you vocally to sort of work with uh the consultant my, my psychiatrist was really good actually um so he gave me three options to start with and the, so i i chose i ruled one out entirely because there's a really high weight gain profile from it and i not willing to take that risk really because my weight has been stable for a good couple of years by then. I'd been out of eating before seven mm. for I think two years. Um and it's been like quite well up until then. So I ruled that out completely. Um it was just three antipsychotics initially that I tried. So basically one of them I got really, really severe like drowsiness and I was sleeping for sort of like fourteen plus hours a day. Um and it made my mouth really dry wow. and my mouth used to bleed like in the night and it was really painful and I couldn't remember my short term memory was really bad and I kept forgetting stuff and I literally just felt like a complete zombie and didn't feel like myself at all. So I switched to a different one after a few months of trying it and had the complete opposite effect where like I completely couldn't sit down, I was like wired, couldn't sleep, my muscles were all like twitchy and I was just like really uncomfortable all the time. Um just felt like I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't sit still. It's quite a weird feeling to explain, but it's just like really like severe agitation. So I stopped taking that one as well. Mm. So then I switched on to a mood stabilizer, which was brilliant. I had like no side effects at all, but it, it worked much better for low moods than just for high moods. So a few years after I started taking it, I had another manic episode, and now I also take another antipsychotic. So I did a mood stabilizer and an antipsychotic now, and I don't have side effects from either of them at all. Um, so I'm really, really lucky that it's funny because they all affect people so differently because some people take the same medications that i took and have like no side effects and find them really helpful so i guess that's why it's good that there's so many to pick from really so you can find the right one for you yeah yeah and you know i'm a, I'm a huge advocate for that to make sure that the individual's voice is being heard and as i said there it's a collaborative effort so that there is that joined up approach because you know the the, the individual's voice provides the data and the feedback for the professional to make the decision if if we're not speaking up for ourselves and we're not sort of saying what what's working and what's not what's right what isn't helpful or beneficial then the actual professional themselves psychiatrist in this instance can't can't make that informed or robust decision and have the confidence to to adjust it and as you say you know the, the contrast in emotions from the initial diagnosis of relief and and grateful of of you know being able to understand why and where things are at but then 
the realization or the coming to terms that is a lifelong diagnosis that you've got to work with and beginning to accommodate that and recognize that it doesn't define who you are either mm. yeah absolutely it's a lot it's a lot to get your head around but I think I think I am lucky because I have got that balance of medication right that some people don't get um and that I have got like a really good support system around me and um like my work are really supportive and my friends and my family and that does help me definitely to stay stable for quite long periods of time so I, I think like yeah like I said it's been two years nearly since I've had an episode either like a depressive or a manic episode um so generally it feels like it doesn't affect my life day to day too much other than that I have to take medication every day and that there is always this sort of underlying anxiety I guess of like I know it's going to come back at some point but I just don't know when it's going to be um and it doesn't mm. really matter how well I look after myself like I can I can prolong episodes that like periods of time that I'm well for by doing everything I'm supposed to be doing but I can't necessarily do anything to prevent ever having an episode again no matter what I do so that there is sort of like an ongoing underlying sense of anxiety in that regard but other than that I feel like at the moment it doesn't really affect my life too much day to day yeah well that underlying anxiety that was I was going to ask you know what how do you then know how do you manage or accommodate the fact that you know that it's inevitable that there will be another episode and as you say that I suppose there's that low level anxiety that you have to be mindful of and maintain and regulate over an ongoing basis um and is a sense of acceptance of of what is yeah so actually last last time I was manic which was I think 2018 um I went to the crisis team for a bit and then I ended up having some therapy with my community mental health team after that and a lot of that was around um acceptance of the diagnosis because I think I never really never really did that when I got diagnosed um, mm. and then because I, I sort of took my medication and was well kind of just put it to the back of my mind and thought oh, I'm not going to really think about that again and then so when it came back it, it was the it was a bit of a shock really because I was like I'm doing everything right why is this happening to me um you know I don't don't really drink that much I try and get like proper sleep I take all my meds so you know when I'm well I eat properly um things like that so I was I'm doing everything right and this is still happening to me it feels really unfair and a lot of the work that I did with the CMHT was about um just sort of acceptance of the diagnosis and saying like you, you know yes this is going to happen at some point again but it doesn't define you and actually it happened previously and you've been able to move on from these episodes and get your life back up together and um yeah just sort of you're right like acceptance that yeah, it is an inevitability, but it's just about how you manage it and move on from it afterwards. I think that kind of defines the episode more than anything. Mm. And are you aware of? Um, well, well, what 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 does a manic episode look like for you? If you don't mind me asking, I know that there are there are going to be differences and nuances for everybody in how they present in crisis. Um, but is it about understanding and recognizing in yourself the behaviours around? that are maybe beginning to contribute to a manic phase yeah and it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing really because sleep for me is is always the sort of earliest warning sign and it's hard to know is it like am I manic because I've not slept or am I not sleeping because I'm manic and which one is it that comes first um the more I have the better I am at identifying like the early warning signs so like when I, last time when I was manic, I, I became like, really intensely interested in things for like a couple of weeks before my sleep started going. 
Um, like, got really obsessed with makeup, and I'm not like a big makeup wearer at all. And I started spending loads of money on makeup and spending like my evenings upstairs watching YouTube videos and like practicing doing my makeup and stuff. And like, literally, I've never like picked up a makeup brush since I was well again after that time. I just got like really fixated on it. Um, spending is probably my worst um, symptom, I would say. Like, I bought a car last time, which was an idea, and then go down to wow. <laughs> So that wasn't ideal. Um, yeah, spending and sleep are like big ones, but I think um, I start lots of like projects and rarely finish them. Uh, I, I wrote half a children's book once. Although interestingly, my Etsy shop is born of a manic episode, and that's probably one of the only like successful fleeting uh, ideas that I've had that's come out of them as a result. But yeah, like lots of little projects. Right. Talking, about, I think I'm really annoying to be around. So I don't stop talking. Um, don't sleep, spend lots of money. When it's been like quite a few days of not sleeping, I start to get, I guess, like borderline psychosis symptoms where like I get quite paranoid. So like, a while ago, I thought like there was somebody in my garden all night watching me through the window. Um, and there's another time where I thought like my water tasted funny and that people were putting things in the water. Um, so not like mm. overtly hallucinating, but yeah, I do get quite paranoid if it's been quite a few days without sleep. And is it important for, you know, you mentioned your partner earlier, is it important for your partner and, and loved ones to also be aware uh, and have that knowledge of um, what may be contributing to signs of stress um, and, and adjustments in behaviours? How have they responded, you know, uh, partners and family? Oh, really well. And I think I think this is the, one of the things that I've learned about talking about my mental health over the last few years as well is like the more you talk about it the more people can help you and support you with it and where I was so like intensely private about myself and my symptoms and how I was feeling previously I did myself a real disservice because sometimes I would get ill and maybe people would have picked up on it beforehand if I'd have been more honest about how I was feeling and how I was behaving um but yeah people around me are great actually and sometimes they're better at identifying my early warning signs than I am now that I'm so open about what they are so it's really useful actually to share that information with people because sometimes they could be like hey you're doing this are you feeling okay and you'd be like oh I didn't even realize um so yeah I'm a huge advocate now of like being honest with people about your symptoms for that very reason but everyone's so supportive I'm really lucky Mm, yeah well and I suppose look hats off to you and the fact that you are that you do communicate and you do share and you keep that channel of dialogue open because you know that for for me i think it's you know we have this uh we have this tool this 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 amazing tool to be able to through language to be able to communicate how we're feeling but we do get quite lazy with it sometimes and rely heavily on sort of non-verbal cues and skills but but often it's the it's the power of being able to um, converse and speak that that adds the weight and provides the information that someone needs and even if it's not in a sort of you know to loved ones in 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 relationships that we're conveying our crisis and distress I think primarily it helps us as well if we're writing stuff down and you know because then we're communicating with self in a different uh, in a different way we're not caught in our own head and allowing it to accelerate at a rapid rate of knots we're committing it to paper we're hearing it back reading it back in a different voice and that can almost distill and refine how we're we're feeling and you know and i suppose that's the power of the blog as well um 
Kara, let's go into your second song choice. I can't believe how quick the show's going. This is frightening. Um, I'm engrossed in the conversation. Uh, so let's dive into your second song choice. Uh, I'm James Rose. This is the Happiness Algorithm. My very special guest today is Kara Lizette. Um, and this is her second song choice. Stick with us here. FM. 
Welcome back to the Happiness Algorithm with me, James Roast. And that was my guest, Kyra Lizette's second song choice. That was Keisha, Learn to Let Go. Um, that was a pretty apt song there, Kara. Yeah, I like the message in that it's about, um, you know, taking a bit of like agency and control over your life and your recovery. I think it's a nice message to get across. Yeah, I, for me, you know, a lot of, um, I was going to say recovery, but th- this is the question that I was going to come on to, actually. And there's something around, I often find myself using the phrase, reaching a point of surrender. I find that when we're in crisis, often we struggle to let go. But by sort of gripping and holding on with all of our might to uh, what we be- believe is right or what we're we've become comfortable with is often more destructive than reaching that point of surrender or as Keisha says, learning to let go and sort of just giving ourselves over to the unknown. Um, because it, again, look, uh, it would be interesting to get your take on this for me, uh, and controversially, uh, and not wanting to lose any listeners here, but an eating disorder, like many other, uh, uh, sort of presentations, a lot is around the control element uh, in for the individual uh, that enables them to, in a world that is constantly beyond our control, always and, and always will be. Uh, when we live, we can we can sort of refine it down to that binary existence, getting it down to black and white. And when we've got something that we that releases that dopamine and gives that hit of, I've got a sense of control again. Um, it becomes extremely addictive in the in the sense that all of a sudden we we feel we feel not not fine, but essentially, wow, okay, I've got something, and I'm going to keep investing in that. Um, why do you? Uh, let's go with this question first. So, so in terms of your journey, and when you look back over the last, or we'll go back to primary school, twelve years old when you were first sort of weighing yourself and, and that, uh, and then depression diagnosed at 13. Why do you think these behaviors presented in the way that they did? What do you understand about it now um, that gives you more context to your story? I'm not sure, like, initially where, the, where it all came from, although, like, we can sort of hypothesize that, like, my household is quite a, um, like, diet focused households there's always lots of talk about weight and people being on weight watchers and things like that which I think probably had quite a significant impact on how early I became aware of that sort of thing um I think it was after my parents separated but was when I sort of get started getting like symptomatic with an eating disorder so I mean you're right like the work I've done in therapy this time around has definitely been probably like the most eye-opening in terms of the function of my eating disorder and it, it is almost entirely about control and that I'm a complete control freak and a perfectionist and I'm quite like on paper I'm quite a, a typical like anorexic person and that I was sort of like white middle-class academic high-teething like all the sort of things that you would tick off on like a an anorexic bingo card was with me when I was a teenager maybe. um <laughs> But yeah, I think it definitely it definitely started around a time where I think I felt like I didn't have very much control over my life, and that does appear to what I've learned in therapy this time to be to be very much the root cause of it for me. 
You mentioned there the, the, the anorexic bingo cards. I know we're making light of that, but essentially often when we when we think about anorexia or as a, a society thinks about anorexia, they do think that sort of teen, white, uh, underweight, but actually eating disorders can present in many different forms. And I think that that restricted view um, actually prevents many hundreds of thousands of people getting access to the treatment they deserve and i know you're 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 a champion of this at the minute and this is quite topical because we know that we've seen eating disorders we've seen an exponential growth during lockdown tell me a little bit more about why this is important to you i think it's just it's scary to think about how many people are excluded from the system because they don't fit the the binary of what what an anorexic person or an eating disordered person needs to look like because you're right. Like there are there are many more eating disorders than just anorexia. Um but that is the first and actually anorexia is the least common diagnosed eating disorder. It's actually the one that the least people have, but it's the one people just automatically go to when you think of it. Um, like most people with an eating disorder aren't underweight. They're not all women, they're not all white, they're not all teenagers, like just you know, any anyone can have an eating disorder, they're not discriminatory illnesses. But you're, yeah, that's not the perception that people have on it. And I just I just think it's really scary that there's so many people out there who aren't able to access treatment because of their weight or because of their, their symptoms maybe don't fit into this, like, diagnostic binary necessarily that are just living this, like, really unhappy life, being consumed by it and not ever really seeing a way, a way out of it because they can't access professional care. Mm. And I suppose it's, a, it's another clear indication of pardon the pun but this sort of one size fits all approach and you know you've seen over your journey you you know you've had cbt didn't particularly engage in that you then had psychodynamic psychodynamic psychotherapy that you really uh, well you said that was really good Mm -hmm. um it's the relationships that you've had with the nurses and the other support staff over the years and and again uh, sorry taking it even further in terms of medication it has to be something built around the individual and therefore the diagnostic aspect of it as well surely has to flex as well yeah i think so um and the the thing with eating disorders as well it's like symptoms are fluid sometimes so like you won't always be behaving exactly the same way like you know one week one behavior might be worse and then it might be a different one the next week and i think for people that do fluctuate in their in their symptoms and as a result maybe fluctuate in their weight they are just being completely overlooked and the problem is, it's, it's just because there's, there's so little money in eating disorder services. They're so like criminally underfunded um, mm. that even for people that are underweight, they can still be sitting on waiting lists for months and months and months on end sometimes. Um, but the first time I was at Western Service, I waited for over a year between assessment and therapy, but this time it was only six weeks. Wow, that's over a year you was waiting yeah. for support. That's um, yeah. yeah, that is criminal. That's that is criminal. But uh, look, I know, I'm sure services, many services are, as you said before, a lot of it is dictated by, by money, and and that restricts how far services can reach or stretch themselves and working within a limited budget. And I suppose it's always that cliche saying that money makes the world go round. Mm. So, what should, so anybody listening that is struggling or knows of somebody that's struggling what what would you recommend that they do for accessing professional support then 
I'm I'm fairly sure it's the same most places, but I would say to go to a GP first and discuss it with them. But I do think there mm-hmm. is an element of having to be quite assertive about what you think you need. Um, so um, Beach, who are the um, UK's leading eating disorder charity, they have a really good resource that you can print out and take to the GP with you on their website for if you like aren't really sure what to say when you get there. And I think that's really useful and it like explains eating disorders and, and sort of does some like myth busting of, of, you know, I'm here and maybe I'm not underweight and maybe I'm not doing X, Y, Z behaviour, but I still have an eating disorder and this is why I sort of thing. So that's really useful. Um, but for me, rather than going and saying, I guess because I've been in the eating disorder system for like 10 years, maybe now as an adult, um, I know it quite well, that rather than going in and saying, like, here are my symptoms, what can you do? I go in and say, here are my symptoms, I want a referral, and that's what I'm here for. Uh, and I think it's really important to say, like, I don't think the GP should be able to say no because they're not the expert, and that's just my my opinion, but probably they can say no, I don't know, but I, I think it should be for the GP to say, actually, I'm not a specialist, I'll refer you on to one, and then it's for them to decide whether you need treatment or not. So that would always be my mm, sort of counter mm. argument if the GP had declined to refer me and say, well, actually, you're not the expert, so I'd like to speak to one and have them make the decision. Yeah, I... I would I'd second that. I think that also I, I, it almost it takes a, a weight of responsibility away from the GP to some extent as well that they don't have to be the expert. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being assertive, as you say, I think it, it's hard to come by sometimes when we are struggling. But I agree with you. I think if we can, if we can go with somebody or we've got that support or we can just muster enough confidence to 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 be assertive and and you're right and I'm pleased that you mentioned beat um because the resource is amazing it's well many of the resources are fantastic mm-hmm. um and uh, urge anybody to go on and, and read through some of their uh, their information and the resources that they can provide because it is having that confidence just to push that uh, little bit further to try and gain access to the support that any of us need uh, that is in crisis so here's a controversial question then Cara I had on um, Hope Virgo a few weeks ago and I have my own take on this um, with regards to recovery and I asked her whether we actually ever recover now i did put a caveat to that as well um but you know your journey you've seen that you know from from 12 13 years old and then relapsing as well um where do you sit in the sort of spectrum of recovery with eating disorders do we ever recover um so i i've asked this question myself on social media and I have had responses from people who have said, yeah, I'm absolutely 100% recovered and it doesn't impact my life at all anymore. I am 100% certain I'll never relapse. You know, that chapter of my life is closed and that's the end of it, which, brilliant, if that's how they feel. Um, I don't feel like that's the place that I will ever get to personally because I think it's something I've been managing for a really long time and for as long as I can really remember so I don't really have any concept of what life is like without having those thoughts because even times where I've been more well in between treatment when I've been out for service and maintaining a healthy weight and those sort of things although 
behaviorally I'm I'm more well I think I've still carried a lot of those anorexic thoughts around with me and I'm just better at challenging them so I would say I don't think I'll ever reach an end point of recovery I think it's something I'll be in forever and I imagine you know depending on what's going on in my life at the time I might be in different stages of it but I I certainly hope for myself that I can maintain recovery from this point on and not end up back in rehab that was that's my sort of goal for myself really and I think I had this conversation with my therapist actually this week and he said you know it's likely that it's going to be something that you're going to be needing to manage forever but what that looks like you know it's kind of up to you really so managing it might just be that occasionally I get you know once once a day once a week get a little niggly thought that I should eat less or that you know that I'm fat or that I'm a bad person as a result of doing xyz um, and that I can just bat those thoughts away but that to me still suggests recovery rather than recovered if that makes sense Mm, yeah it does I always find it interesting and I wonder whether it's the limitation of language really because I feel that um you know touching on hope virgo there you know she says that it's the eating disorder is is a friend and i suppose it's a friend and foe in times of crisis it's served a purpose and it's and it's helped on some level on a very binary basis um and so therefore when we've found something or created something that has helped us in times of crisis it would be very difficult to see it as the enemy and and again speaking to um uh, speaking to a group yesterday uh, of individuals with eating disorders, I said that often in society we're almost encouraged to see food as the enemy on occasions, whether it's at one end of the spectrum of obesity or, or down the other end with with anorexia. But I suppose life is a constant, evolving, transient process. And so for me, recovery is an interesting one. And I, like you, think, well, what does recovery look like? How can we ever be rid well, how can we ever rid ourselves of those thoughts that, you know, inevitably there's always going to be a point where, well, I, if I sort of bring it down to a basic and not, not simplifying self-harm in any way, shape or form, but anybody that I'm working with, with who is self-harming, I'll often say, look, I can't ever guarantee you'll never self-harm again because it, in, a, in effect, it is a coping mechanism on some level. And in 50 years time, if you're, you know, life runs into a position of crisis, the brain's going to work through various coping mechanisms and it may find a dusty old box tucked away in the deepest recesses of the brain and brushes it off and sees self-harm and says, hey, I haven't tried this for 50 years and it might get it out of the box again. So I often wonder whether or what actually recovery is and to your point, what it looks like. And hey, great for those that um, do say that they're fully recovered, but I just wonder if it's ever as black and white as that. So a cheeky question. I do apologize, but I was interested in, uh, in what your answer would be to that. Um, now we are fast approaching the end of our conversation and, um, and it is disappointing because I know I, I just, I want to hear more and more and I'm sure the listeners do too, but before we sign off, Cara, um, please share, with the listeners uh the the blog cara's corner your social media handles how people can get in touch and contact you yeah so i'm most active on twitter and instagram my handle is at cara just all is one word um i 
try to be as honest as possible about my journey. So there will be you know bad times on there as well as positive times. I don't like to portray recovery as being a straight line because I think that's very realistic, and I don't like the idea that people might look at my story and feel bad about their own recovery because it's not all sunshine and roses because mine isn't either so yeah you will find quite an honest account of of what it's like going through anorexia recovery on on instagram and twitter uh, my blog is cara's corner and you can just google cara's corner and i come up or it's caras-corner.com amazing so uh get out there and start following people i urge you all because i think the blog and uh, cara's presence on social media is one that is admirable it's honest it's open i think it Oh, as we've as we've shared and discussed in the conversation, I think it helps so many people because of the relatability and how personable um, and open you are. So, um, yeah, amazing. I, we can't end without asking about the future. Um, obviously, you've just picked up accolade, as I said at the top of the show, of uh, social. Let me get this right: social media champion of the year, twenty twenty. That was off the back of uh, blogger of the year last year. You was runner up this year of blogger of the year. Um, what does the next six to twelve months look like for you, Cara? What do you hope for? Well, I think professionally, what I'm. I've just finished my phase return back to work from being off sick so what I really want is just to be able to settle back in and just be a good nurse again like I know that I can be when I'm well um I have lots of um you know ideas for things that I can be writing on my blog and keeping that going um keeping up with my sort of sharing my recovery journey and I think I think by the end of this year I'll have been discharged from eating disorder services again for what I hope is the third and final time and um, so mm-hmm. yeah I think I'd like to just be nothing too grand but just getting back on with my life and, and being as well as I can be good I hope for all of those things for you too and um uh, and I think that even when you feel as though you're not at your best I'm sure you're still an amazing nurse and um and help many people uh that you're working with so before we close uh, we must hand over to the resident expert mr tom hanks to see what he thought of the show so uh tom how do you think that went i'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast i'd have to agree with you it was a successful broadcast a successful show um i've been james rose this has been the happiness algorithm my special guest today has been cara lazette um and what an amazing conversation we've had i've taken so much in terms of you know asking for help keeping a channel of dialogue open being assertive um with what we need uh, maintain an awareness of self in terms of what that internal narrative is and, and being aware of our behaviors um, and symptoms are, are often fluid they you know we uh Cara and I spoke about off air we're, we're not anorexic one month and then not the next so we, we have to kind of constantly maintain uh, a, a relationship with self and understand what that is um, we'll be back with more great guests next week more great music more great conversation uh be safe be healthy and be happy daisies 
breeze, the birds and the trees are singing along with me. I'm just looking for happy sunrise lights my smiley face clock sliding in my socks. I pour my first cup of tea. Looking for happy. If you open your heart, you will see there's a million little opportunities to be looking for happy, looking for happy.